This episode is called Wild Swans and is dedicated to a fairy tale that many will know, but the power of this episode is not just in the roots of the story and myth, but the lives of us two women that are before you now. This episode is heavy, deep, and tender. Please ensure you are in the headspace to be able to listen to topics like grief, persecution, and oppression before entering this portal with us. Creativity is an extension of the human experience. This wild, boundless seascape has been our anchor for our friendship and our sanity. This podcast is an exploration between close friends of storytelling and artistic expression. In this episode, we will explore grief beginning with the art of storytelling and closing with personal applications and how we've continued on, in some cases triumphed, and in some cases maybe not. Before delving, we need to respond to the currents of today in which we find ourselves. Pixie lives in the United States. Rudeau is from the United States. And here um, we are now being plunged backwards very severely. And the victims of this travesty are the women, the mothers, and the ones who don't want to mother. The rights to govern our own bodies have been taken away from us, as Roe versus Wade has been overturned. And we will fight. We will not stop until equity has been obtained. And just as our wild swan heroine went through extreme persecution, which did not end her life, we will act and we will fight until our own sisters and mothers' stories come around right. Mm. And so we begin. (laughs) The Wild Swans. There is a story that is common amongst many cultures. Though the story has hundreds of variations, there are themes consistent throughout. Those elements are swans, transformation, a witch's curse, royal children that undergo persecution, and a sister's heroic deeds. Pixie will now share summaries of the version that means the most to her, and then we'll delve into aspects that apply to our lives. The Wild Swans Once upon a time, in a faraway kingdom, there was a widowed king, and he had seven children, There were six princes, and there was one princess. Their childhood was rich with love and art and adventures in the forest, but sadly, he lost his wife to a terrible disease and eventually decided to remarry. Sadly, the woman he married turned out to be a bitter, cruel, envious woman, and she used dark magic. Out of spite and jealousy, she turned her six stepsons into magnificent swans, and they were only allowed to be human at night so they had to fly away in the day. The princess was intolerable to the queen. She saw her as competition, so she banished her. She made her unrecognizable and dirtied her face. Her brothers found her and took her to fairy world, and she learned the way she could break the spell. She had to gather stinging nettles in graveyards and had to knit shirts that she would have to put on each brother and help them regain their shape. She also could not speak until that task was done, or her brothers would die. 
So she lived in the wilderness and knitted these sweaters, her hands becoming blistered and raw. And she was in isolation and much physical pain. One day, Handsome King found her and got to know her. And he was in awe of her knowledge of herbs and plants, her tenacity, and how she had survived in the wilderness so long. And so he fell in love with her, despite the strangeness of that task. And she went to live with him. And eventually, they decided to be married. All the while, she continued knitting her sweaters. Unfortunately, there was an archbishop in that kingdom, and he thought the princess was a witch. The king did not believe him. He stood by her. But one night, when the king was away, the archbishop saw the princess get nettles from the graveyard, and he used it as a way to prove she was a witch and decided to have her put on trial for witchcraft. The king was not there and could not stop it, and she could speak no word in her defense. So she was sentenced to death by burning at the stake. While all of this was happening, her brothers were fading more and more into the animal world, but kept visiting her whenever they could. On the eve of her execution, she was walked to the corner of town and surrounded by jeering crowds, but she still had her sweaters with her. Her brothers, her brothers flew all around her, and at the same time, the king happened to return. Finding chaos in the archbishop's bishop's wake, he ran to the platform to pull her from the fire. As soon as he did, she managed to throw the sweaters onto each brother, and in this moment, her brothers returned to their human forms. The youngest brother, however, had a swang swing because she didn't have, did not have time to finish one sleeve of her shirt. The princess was now free to speak and tell the truth, and she did. As they did tell the truth to the people, the firewood around the princess stake, <laughs> the firewood around the princess miraculously took root and burst into flowers. The king took the topmost flower and placed it on her chest. This gave her new life. They returned to her home, and they tried to heal, and they did get better, but they were forever changed and would never be the same. And the king and the princess went on many adventures, had their own children, but never forgot the evils they had to fight and worked forever to protect those in need. Wow. Poof. Great summary. Thank you. And the the book that you're writing out of is is easily accessible? Well, um I want to say a few things in terms of my references. Um Sure. I've been delving deep into mythology for some time, for a couple of years. And there are two particular writers that I'm mentioning and would love to eventually speak with. Um, one is Martin Shaw. He's a mythologist from England. And um, he's the one who got me thinking about retelling old stories. Um, and then uh, Juliette Marier, and I might be saying her name wrong, and I apologize. She is a writer from New Zealand, and she wrote a new version of the wild swans called daughter of the forest. And it's actually a series. And um, that was my first exposure to the story. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that interesting difference of your first exposure versus mine. But yes, I referenced, I really loved her telling of it. And so I pulled some pieces out of it and it is kind of empowering to be writing the story in my own words and pulling from what I liked and what I didn't, because I'm, I, I empowered it a little more. I took things from the old story I didn't like, and I, 
I changed them. Even as I told it, I actually made a few different choices. So yeah, um, and that's yeah. an that's an important um, differentiation. I think that we have this idea that uh, folk tales are codified in stone and are, are, are unchanging. And I think a lot of people who don't have a really good relationship with history and the way it's taught have a misconception that uh, history is the same way that it's set in stone, that what has happened has happened. But um, any really good historian will tell you that history is constantly changing. Uh, our understanding of what happened is being unearthed, unveiled, all the time because people were constantly being written out of history and the version of history being told is being investigated constantly. So I love that you are embodying the fact, the pure fact that things do not stay the same. They're always changing. And to add, that's beautifully, beautifully said. And to add to that, what I keep saying to myself as we've been preparing for this episode is there's deep roots here. This is a story that's been told over and over again in a variety of different ways. But the story, the roots of it, the core of it are still strong. And when I read it, and the thing I've learned from Martin Shaw is you need to read it many, many times. And it casts a spell on you. And it has deep, earthy meaning even as it evolves and changes with maybe little things about it that are told. It's still the same skeleton. And I find that to be very empowering because I can see myself in this character, especially right now. Mm. I definitely, that's, and that's something we shared. I definitely saw myself. I didn't understand why. So I saw myself in that princess, uh, stitching or create crafting the, the, the sweaters out of stinging nettles and different, different cultures have different words for plants, and there's lots of different plant references in the um, Seven Swans, Six Swans, Wild Swans story. There's lots of different types of um, folklore and plant lore in there, but Stinging Nettles for me feels m like my truth of that story, and her interaction with Stinging Nettles, I was transfixed as a child to that. And I remember my first exposure to this story was a book on tape. Uh, my parents were really, really into giving me books on tape and I was listening to it. And the interesting thing about this particular version is that I had a coloring book of the stories being told in the book on tape. I, wow. I mean, brilliant, brilliant move. More people need to do that. And so I was using a very beautiful and old watercolor set, painting set, painting in a coloring book while listening to the story. There is nothing more prophetic to who I am as a person than that. <laughs> it's amazing. And it deepens the experience when you're experiencing that way, as well as listening to it. It's like all your senses are involved. Exactly. So I remember tracing over different things like the beauty of this princess and her hands and wanting to, and aching for the ability to be able to draw like that. And then having, being able to choose the colors myself, there's a mythology to that for me in informing my truth. And so 
flash forward to 20-year-old Rudo, 21-year-old Rudo, I started to experience a warping of my nail beds and a discoloration of my skin. And then my skin started to slough off. I am I apologize ahead of time. I'm going to get graphic and I'm so sorry if this makes people feel squeaky, but my hands, my skin of my hands and the skin of my feet began to disintegrate. And what was left raw, aching um, under layers of skin that shouldn't be exposed because our skin naturally exfoliates at a healthy rate. We're constantly sloughing off skin cells. But when you have a dermatitis or dermatological issue, the skin exfoliates and drops off faster than it should. And so I was starting to get patches of skin that were uh, raw and exposed and way too sensitive to be able to to handle. And the the rationale behind, behind why I believe that was happening to me was a combination of living out of balance in, in a healthy way, but also, uh, you know, toxic exposure from a lot of art supplies. I was not doing, I was not heeding any of the safety protocols in being in art school. I, and I was using bare skin for everything. Um, but the, <laughs> the issue is that people were always saying like, wear gloves for that now. I mean, like you're in pain, wear gloves. I could not. If I, if you remove my ability to feel and to experience the senses, you might as well just neuter me. Right. And so I refused, but then I became worse and my skin issues were so painful that I wasn't able to touch anything. There was a period of time where I couldn't open a door. I couldn't um, open a drink bottle. I couldn't grasp a pen. I couldn't touch my lovers. And so I started to accommodate. I would you, I would touch people with the back of my hand. I learned how to open things with my wrists. Uh, I learned that baths were incredibly helpful to ease pain. And I started to research what plants would stop this skin sloughing. You know, I felt like a leper. And so I started to, out of a need, out of a survival need, I started to learn about healing plants. <laughs> so comfrey and hemp were um, some of the most intensely helpful plants at that time and calendula. So the where stinging nettle comes in for me in my life was after I separated from my partner of 15 years and just barely months out of that separation. One of my dear friends, Tracy was going to get married at a very beautiful location called the tree church. And it was this man's property who had created an entire arbory of different types of trees and different uh, formations. And he had made a labyrinth and a walking, like a walking path and we were playing around and getting familiar with the land so that we could plan her wedding there. And he said, would you like to walk through the labyrinth? And I was like, sure. I removed my shoes because I wanted to feel the earth. And little did I know, oh, hang on, I got to turn off my heater. It just popped on. Little did I know that I was about to walk 
on stinging nettles. And I began to walk this labyrinth that was, it had been, it was mowed frequently or, or curated frequently. So the whole thing wasn't nettles. But as I walked, I realized that I was walking on something stinging. And I realized that this was a rite of passage and that I was to process my grief in conjunction with being kind of stung. And I didn't understand it, but I knew that I was saying goodbye. I knew that I was experiencing trial and tribulation in a very visceral way. And then I started to date and I met a Druid (laughs) and fell in love. And lo and behold, I get introduced to stinging nettle as a medicinal plant, as a source of nutrients, as a source of ritual. And I, all the pieces of my life in, in relation to this story, in relation to this topic, all of it came together. And I realized this is stinging. Ne- th- that's what I was stepping on. This is the story. This is the seven swans. Wait a minute. And I fell in love with this incredible plant. And I realized for me, as we began to discuss our podcast and to talk about how we would experience, how would we, how would we discuss and unpack grief and knowing, and then you came up with the idea of talking about, you know, using the Martin Shaw path of deepening into a folktale, into a myth, deepening into it. And I said, I have this weird association and I don't understand why. And both of us were holding this story in our, in our hearts. And so my observation of this, there's hundreds of versions all over the world and each story having the witch's curse, the heroic sister and the persecution. Plant thematics for me is the most important aspect. The most powerful aspect for me is stinging nettles. Her, her, you know, the sister's perseverance through the pain to save her brothers. And that the story's star for me is the nettle because this, the stinging nettle to me is a symbol of, of healing, of getting through grief, that pain comes first and it's transformative and a necessary teacher. And that's the power of the myth is that we trans we transcribe we share emotional pain that we can connect to because humans are so good at connecting through emotions and we do that through storytelling so intense i'm just feeling so many things listening to you um <laughs> It's so beautiful. Yeah. And it's so beautiful partly because my personal, like the star for me is going to be different. And I love that. Like, I love that we each find that rootedness in that story, what we latch onto and why we do. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you for 
birthing this project for us to be able to better understand our lived experiences. I couldn't have done it without you. <laughs> um, I guess I'll share, uh, I, you know, when I was thinking about this, I was also overwhelmed. I think we actually recorded one first and it was, it was interesting. Um, but this, this is like a whole other universe we've entered. Mm. And um, I was trying to choose a story myself that would, I could link with the, the book, but I'm going to quickly just say, for me, um, I found this story, like I said, later in life, I found it a few years ago. And I have always identified with Lord of the Rings and Lord of the Rings was always my hero's journey. And I remember reading this book and viscerally, intensely identifying with this woman and what she went through in a different way than Frodo. And I think it made a big difference figuring out there was a heroine's journey too. And I didn't, I honestly don't think I had had that experience yet, which is sad. You know, that in my late 30s, that's the first time I had that experience. And suddenly that myth in my head of Frodo lugging that ring up the mountain, as much as I still identify with it, suddenly this overtook that for me. And you know that's huge because you know I used that movie to get through school. I watched it all the time. And so um, it just it just hit me really deep. So I thought of a story and it's, I lost my cat um, last year around this time, I think. And I loved that cat. Um, that cat was from an, also about a 10 year relationship, someone I care about, I always will care about very much. And I um, bonded with that animal and we were very deeply connected and I would call her my demon um, if anyone knows The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman um, or have seen his dark materials, highly recommend. Um, I, she felt like a part of me, like an extension of myself. And I was actually at that time going through lots of loss and lots of trauma. And I was kind of on my own and in a new city. And I had to make that choice. And that's the ripping off of your protection. That's... Um, when the witch dirties her face, it's going into the underworld. I had to, I was, I was bare. I was, um, exposed. I had no safety. I was in isolation because I, and only I could make that choice. And then once you do make that choice, um, you have to sit with it. And I had to be with her in that room. And I had to, hold her while she died by myself. Um, and I had a friend, an amazing friend who came with me. And we were talking about this, that even though she was with me, I still felt alone. No one yeah. would have made me feel, no one would have made me feel better. And um, that whole idea of her not being able to speak mm. um, hit me very hard because she had to do it by herself. This is hard to talk about. <clears throat> so now 
Um, it's about a year out. And I'm going to say her name. Her name is Miss Honey. And I named her after a character in Roald Dahl's book, Matilda, the teacher in that book. She was just like that character. Um, and I have her ashes on my mantle. And um, I am not better from it. I'm not. I'm forever changed. Kind of like her brother with the wing. I still have a wing. Um, and... um. But I would do it all over again for the love of that animal. Um, and and the people who were there for me through it and supported me in my choices. I had friends who advised me and who comforted me after. And that bond, that love, it's all worth it. So, you know, knitting those sweaters for people you love, I I held her the whole time and I looked her in the eyes and um, was making what I thought was the best choice so that she would not suffer. So I named multiple things. I don't think for me there is a star in the story. Um, it's a couple of things. I mean, the isolation is huge for me. Um, the rawness of... There, there is a scene in the book, and I again, I, this is a little rough. Um, there is a scene of rape in the book. She gets raped, and for me, um, it meant a lot to read that because that is representation of power and oppression for me. And um, I know I'm I'm moving in and out of a subject and kind of going macro and micro, but what I'm saying is that That's I right. could re- I could relate to what it means to be a woman in this in this society. So that was huge. And that isolation, um, the what it does, what, what suffering can do and grief can do to you. But then I think if I was going to pick, and I shared this with you earlier, um, the, the thing that really hit me the most, that was the most impactful to me, were the people around her who believed in her no matter what. And I remember my friend, Abby, sitting with me in that room, holding space for me. And she had just lost her cat, so it was very intense. And um, my partner who um, held tons of space for me and just people who let me grieve and, and just kept reassuring me and giving me space to just feel through that, that situation. Um, even if I've still felt alone, I had a source of empowerment might be the word. And so in the book that Juliet writes, um, the King who isn't actually a king, but he's like the head of the town. He never gives up on her. I love that too. And he likes the things about her that make her different. And I also think to move a little away from Miss Honey again in the in the wake of what's going on in America, when I hear men raging, when I yeah. hear men feeling that, it's very healing for me. And there are a lot of men who are just as mad. And um, who are who are like being there with us, and that character that she wrote, his name is Red. Um, I adored him, and he was I, maybe if I had to pick a star, he was the star. And I'm not saying that I didn't absolutely adore her. She's she, I identify with her, but I loved that he was the healthy masculine, mm. and that he, you know, she didn't, you know, she was saving herself. She was doing all the work, but she kind of needed to be saved too, and he did. 
you know, he pulls her from the, from the stake and he pulls her from the fire. And sometimes we need people to pull us from the fire. Yeah. And also if I think about some of my favorite folk tales, they often have uh, a really unique relationship between the partners. So, you know, it's heteronormative most of the time. So husband and wife, uh, the, the belief in her that, you know, no matter how many times people tried to sully her name and sully her reputation, he said, no, that doesn't feel right to me. I don't believe you. And them being equal, this equal sharing of partnership that they make decisions together, that they go through things together. Uh, there's a couple of other stories where that's a really significant hinge to the the destiny that unfolds. So I get that. I get why that's a really important thing to speak into right now where we have never that's probably incorrect that we've never been this out of balance, but there is such imbalance between who holds power and who gets to choose who the rules apply to and who they don't apply to that to be able to celebrate a person who is the closest to power source, which are in America, white property holding men that, that they too can be enraged that they too will allow the the curtain to be exposed that this is hypocrisy this is not what a nation should stand for that rights are only applicable to some that is a significant message to be hearing right now that there are pockets of people who are willing to unveil their proximity to power in order to be able to restore what is truly everyone's right. Yes. Thanks for mentioning that. Thank you. And it's just so weird that we have been working on this topic of grief and the recording of this episode for so long and to have it be plopping into place after Roe v. Wade has been, yeah, wow. Yes, I'm finding myself a little speechless. But I think what we're offering here or what we're reminding everyone here is there's all these ancient, old stories that our ancestors gave us. Mm. Yep, lessons, pieces of information. And they're here. And they're here in the story. And yeah. we all are part of that story. Um, so if we were to turn toward grief as a as the star of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Irregardless of the significance of the timeline that we're recording, the topic of grief and how you and I relate to it, can we 
Can I first ask you, my darling Pixie, to unpack a little bit of how you relate to grief? I try my best to not be totally devastated by it. I think it's a big part of what I'm learning here um, on the planet right now because it's very difficult for me. Um, it has physical implications for my body. I've, I haven't been able to eat before. Um, I have um, tension. I get migraines and I know where they're, where they're from. And I'm working really hard on mastering those things. And the truth of the matter is you have to move through them. You can't ignore them or cover them up. And there is richness in the underworld. And, it, you know, we were talking about that. We've been talking about that. You know, this story is a journey of um, this character going into the underworld. And there is rich soil there. Although sometimes it feels like we just can't seem to get out of it. Um, so my relationship is I'm trying to befriend it because it is a part of life. Um, and we talked in our last episode about, you know, how we are artists and how for me, I think art is a way of me coping with that and transforming it. So I don't stay there, but it is, it is ongoing. And, um, I have a feeling it will always be, um, that way. Because I think we can find new ways to handle it. We can find new ways to talk about it and heal from it. But it's kind of part of being alive. And the big thing that I've learned with my studies into mythology and listening to Martin Shaw and reading these beautiful books that these amazing writers write, the big thing missing in our in our culture, in my opinion, is ritual around these things. We have celebrations for joy, joyful events, but we don't have circles for grief. And so I almost feel inspired to say that I think this is the start of that. I'd love it if this started that off for people because I feel like right now we're doing that. I think we're having a sacred space for our grief because we're talking about old experiences, um, but we're also bringing them home to something we're living in right now. And we're just feeling it. I'm just going to feel it. I think that's a really important, critical factor in our presencing with grief because it is a part of life. So how do we relate to it is another way of saying, how can we be more present in our life? And for me, my interpretation of what it is to be alive hinges on my relations, my community, both alive and dead, and how I can hold more space and be in ceremony and be in presence with others because I don't exist outside of others. So 
I love the idea of being able to create more opportunities where people can gather and we're not celebrating a joyous occasion. We are celebrating the collective and loss is sometimes completely skipped over. Um, I did an interview once with a death doula, a friend of mine who, uh, whose job it is to help people navigate death. Um, and she said that, you know, culturally there's a really deep significance with people who grow up in a culture where you don't touch, you don't talk about uncomfortable things or painful things. And even like the act of comfort isn't done through touch, isn't done through um, being more present and more available. It's, oh, leave them alone. And I just don't see that being a healthy or sustainable way that we are going to get out of disempowering moments like this. So I do invite more touch into the lives of people who are open to that. <laughs> and I do invite more gatherings that can be centered around discomfort and not just um, pleasurable times. Having said that, as you know, for me, the deepest part of this story is plants or plant magic. And for me, that's how I cope. That's how I relate. That's how I stay more present in my life through plants, you know, through perfumes, like very, very, very fine perfumes that are, you know, distilled of the essence of the flower, not, you know, like super chemically alcoholy perfumes. I'm talking about the real deal. And scent that is carried through a plant is incredibly informative and helpful for me. So I go into a very sensual experience to be able to be more present. It's for me, I access that through my senses. Um, that does mean that I'm on the opposite scale for you in terms of like eating habits. So when I am in grief, I eat. Um, and the plants if I can go back to how do I stay more present, it is through um, tinctures, tonics, teas, perfumes. I feel such a deep kinship, kindredness towards my relatives that are plants. And I feel like I'm the same. I am the same as them and they are, they are me. And so it's through the communion of consuming and dancing with plants that I am able to get through that rite of passage of that is grief. Um, I haven't been able to mourn very many people who have died in my life. Um, you've shared that you've been able to be um, a vigil sitter for relatives that have passed who have died. I have never... I've been so far removed from that experience, um, which I find really hinders my ability to have a good relationship with death. It's really scary for me, but I have a very good relationship with pain. And I don't mean good as in like, you know, I don't know what I mean to say by that 
is that I understand it and I can stay very, very present through pain, through emotional and physical pain. I understand uh, very deeply. That's mm-hmm. been my rite of passage is having something taken away from me, my ability to draw, my ability to touch, and being in pain all the damn time from that. It has completely changed me, completely changed me. And plants have saved me. Mm. That's amazing. And um, what's coming out of all of this is so many people who know plants reminding women that they have the power to do what they need to do with their, you know, for their bodies with plants. And people, women have been doing it for a very long time. Yes. Before the pharmaceutical industry became what it was, our backyard was our pharmacy cabinets. And the industry of pharma taught us that the outdoors was unsafe and that plants could poison us. And therefore the knowledge was lost. But that is inaccurate. And it's finding a resurgence in a real way And yes, you can absolutely abort an unwanted pregnancy uh, through plants and there will be a a rise of um, practitioners because of this. So that's interesting (laughs) in and of itself, but also the, our relationship to our fertility has to change as well. Um, And our relationship to sex has to change as well. And our relationship to power has to change. The issue that I've had with many, many fairy tales has been that women are powerless in them, that they are victims. And that's not a story that I can stand. Uh, You know this about me. (laughs) Uh, The idea that we don't have power, that power has been taken away from us, to some extent is an illusion. Now our proximity to our ability to retake power is, is deeply hampered by generational poverty, by generational uh, uh, issues of being able to access education, being able to access clean and healthy living. But it is an illusion to say that the government can take away our power. Yeah. Um, I'm revisiting the story again, um, Juliet's book. And I think that was part of what I loved about it. Um, she had a lot of terrible things happen to her, but she um, has a lot of power. And in the old story, too, she does. She is the one making the sweaters. <laughs> And she knows how to work with that plant. And by the way, for context, starwort is also a burning plant. So it damages her hands in that story as well. It's just a different one. And so not only is she suffering because she lost her family and she lost um, her old self and also the idea that it's royal family. You know, I, I know this, maybe this sounds silly, but we're all royalty, you know, so she lost that innocence, that youthful innocence. And she 
is plunged into this darkness, but she um, keeps going and she has people there who help her and believe in her, but she does it herself. That's a really empowering story. Um, Very different than a lot of other fairy tales where the princess is asleep and can't be woken, you know, bullshit like that. Yeah. So maybe a really cool way to think about this is by rewriting these stories, can we rewrite our reality? Mm. We tell new versions. We tell them over and over again. We learn about ourselves and we shift. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the whole point. That's yes. why we tell stories to process, to look at deep things and to transform. And I kind of feel like it might, we might be nearing the end of this. I feel mm-hmm. like we've, I f- it feels like. Came out smooth and clean and freaking strong. Yeah. Is there anything else you think we need to share? That, you know, there's a lot of referencing to things within this and that with the way that our container of this podcast is, those show notes are links and resources. So again, to remind um, that there there is quite a lot of context needed in the things that we're discussing and that the opportunity to do your own research is really important. The opportunity to be held <laughs> while you are learning is very important. So one thing that I've realized is that we are expected to grow and to upskill constantly but through that requires a really healthy uh, safety net of rest, nutrients, community support, uh, and any other therapeutic tools that are required. And, and therapy is anecdotal. It's not always just sitting on a couch and talking it out. There are a myriad of therapeutic tools out there. So I guess my thing is that yeah, we're talking about really horrific things that are just a part of life. Having said that, with each and every moment, we have a tool belt of things that we can call to. It could be people, it could be plants, it could be a therapeutic practice, a type of meditation, a type of movement that in conjunction with the horrors of life come bombs in many different forms. So I hope that you, dear listener, know that at the back of your mind, you might be really uncomfortable, but what, what do I do in these things, in these times, you know, you, you Pixie have an incredible practice where you write down things that you need to do when you are in a state of emergency. And so the, the solutions are kind of 
right there for you at hand. And I can share that for a moment if if you would like. Sounds great. Yeah. Cuz we I I I think we talked about this when you were going through something a few years ago and um if I only know it because I learned it from amazing wise people. Um and I teach it sometimes to my students. Um but I think about survival in the moment. Basic questions, have I eaten? Have I drank water? Have I showered? Am I hungry? Um, do I need to sleep? If I can't sleep, how can I rest? Um, you know, different levels of functioning. Sometimes you can't function. And that's another um, hard part about the way the world is right now is a lot of times you don't have time. You kind of have to try and fight for that time. You know, you deserve it. And it's like we're remembering we have the right to it. Um, so if you need to take a sick day, if you have access to that, you do it. If you need help from somebody, you ask. If you need to make a phone call, you make it. And I, you know, I also make reminders on that list of things that could help me. A bath, um, tea, calling a friend, taking a walk, listening to music, and just trying to pick one or two things on that list to try and shift the energy. Because one thing I do know, even though it sometimes doesn't feel like it, is this too shall pass. And yes, that is Gandalf. And um, it is, everything is cyclical. And so do I still lean on Gandalf in those dark times? Yes, I do. (laughs) And um, we all, so then, you know, finally on that list, I would say, I'd add it now, is find your story. What's your story? What story like has those characters in it that carry you up the mountain when you can't do it yourself? Mm. Because those stories are there for you. And they've always been there for me. Is that us? Have we done it? I think we did it. Anything remaining for you that you wish to speak to? I don't have any advice or wisdom right now. I feel compelled to be really honest and raw about where I'm at from my my vantage point in the United States. I'm really disappointed I'm heartbroken. I'm terrified. Um, I'm disappointed in what I see because it's not what I thought the founding fathers of this place was supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. And I am working through grief right now and trying to figure out how I best can contribute. Mm. And I just think we all should be communing with each other, grieving with each other. And fighting. Because I'm going to quote Martin Shaw again, but this quote just stays in my head every day 
and he was talking about there's like you know and i i would you know never claim to know exactly what any other person means but i feel how i interpret what he's he was saying he wrote a book during the pandemic and he was saying there's like a malaise like we're we're um hypnotized by social media and we're hypnotized by the reality we believe we're in and he said i'm done with this i'm taking my imagination back <laughs> and I apologize if I'm misquoting that, but to me, taking my imagination back means I'm sick of this shit. I'm reimagining the world. I'm believing another reality can be possible and I'm doing everything it takes to make it that way. And people will say, you're crazy. People will say, that can't be. We can't reimagine um, community or culture or money or um, self-care or any of the number of things that we don't have enough of, or so many people have nothing. Um, No, I reject that. I'm taking my imagination back. And to me, it's a very empowering thing to hear. So um, thank you to him for all of the gifts he's given me, because I don't think I could have made this without all of the wisdom he's infused into me. And um, I uh, just... We're not alone. We're together, even if we feel isolated. And we just have to keep lifting each other up. I mean, that's all I can come up with for the energies that are flying around right now. And we have to be educated, Mm well-organized, and collectively minded in order to change. Hmm. Yes. Well, in closing, thank you for your time, Pixie. Thank you. Thank you, dear listener, for being with us. Please look after yourself after listening to this. Grief marks us. And in the marking, it is wound-like. Here lies our information for healing, universal ways and personal ways that work for us. One thing is common. We are determined to keep going, even if it burns our hands. Mm. Mm. Thank you, dear one, for listening. Check out our show notes for our, our inspirational links and resources. In our next episode about music and how it's formed who we are, we invite you to join as we delve. (laughs) The theme song we use for our podcast entitled Whimsical Aliens was written by Pixie's friend and performed by Alejandro Bernard from Ithaca, New York. Ali! (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Until next time. Carry on.